Our second reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 16. Is that right? Through uh, verse 21. Verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which stands the test of time. We pray that you would be present with us uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit as we look into your word this day, that you would speak uh, a word to us and that you would make us uh, different because of that. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in 1773... The romantic comedy, She Stoops to Conquer, by Irish playwright Oliver Goldsmith, premiered in London. And that play, now more than 200 years old, continues to be staged regularly in theaters throughout the English-speaking world. The plot is convoluted. Raise your hand if you've seen She Stoops to Conquer. A couple of you have. The rest of you should. It's actually a very, very clever play. So the, the story is simple. There's Marlowe, who's a, uh, a wealthy young man from London, is nervous around women of his own class. And Kate, who's a, ye- a wealthy young countrywoman, is interested in Marlowe, and she pretends to be a serving maid so that the shy Marlowe will woo her. And in the end, the couple are engaged and everyone is happy. In this play, Kate stoops to conquer. She's rich and powerful, but her riches and power, if displayed and deployed, would prevent her from getting what she wants, the affection of a a bashful bachelor. And so, so she humbles herself so that she can win. That combination of power... And humility are, uh, is a hallmark of the Christian life. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, divine lawgiver, supreme judge, alpha and omega, becomes a helpless child, a poor man. And he dies a criminal's death so that sin and death might be conquered so that God might woo us and make us his bride. God stooped. To conquer. And so we, the followers of the king who became a servant, we who are children of God, we who are brothers and sisters of Jesus, we who are joint heirs of the kingdom, we too 
are called to live lives of profound humility. Not because we're nothing or not because we're nobodies, but because by stooping, we're able to conquer in the name of Jesus. Here's the puzzle. We need to hold together two seemingly contrary ideas. First is our absolute surpassing worth. Our dignity as children of God. Here's what 1 Peter 2.9 says about us. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have an exalted place in God's creation. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a very special role that God has designed for you. And guess what? That role is not just for this life. It's also for the life to come. It's for eternity. This chosen people, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this special possession is forever. When we think about the majesty and the wonder of the universe, when we think about the expanse of space and time, we need to realize that all of that is just a blip in eternity. Empires will rise and empires will fall, but the people of God are forever and we will rule and we will reign with Jesus for all eternity. So the first thing to keep in mind is that you are a child of God. You are a child of the Most High King and your worth and your splendor is beyond your imagination. We don't actually realize how amazing we are. One day angels will pay honor to us as we walk by. Because we are the redeemed of the Lord. Remember this. But the second thing we need to remember is that during this pilgrim journey, we're called to be the servant of servants. We're called to associate with the lowly. We read in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Even though we are princes and princesses, even though we are destined to rule and to judge for all eternity, we are called by God to not be puffed up, to not be proud, and to not think too highly of ourselves. We're called to associate with those people that the world considers lowly. It's countercultural. You and I live in a society where we join exclusive clubs so that we don't have to rub elbows with the riffraff. We live in a society where we move to exclusive neighborhoods so we don't have to live next door to people that we consider beneath ourselves. We live in a society where we angle to get into first class so we don't have to sit with the crowds and the crying babies in economy class. In other words, we live in a society that is not Christian. We live in a society that does not embody Christian values, and we need to stop pretending that it does. The Christian worldview is countercultural because the Bible sees this world and the Bible sees our lives from the point of view of eternity, while gurus of this age are much more short-sighted. 
They're stuck in the temporal realm. They're stuck in the quarter-to-quarter domain. And so as Christians, on the one hand, we are more valuable than we can even say. We're brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs of the prince of the universe. But on the other hand, as Christians, we're called to profound humility. And it is in this way that we actually imitate Christ our Lord. Here's what Philippians 2, 6 and 8 says about Jesus. Being in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So while it seems like these two things stand in opposition, the the true grandeur of our very nature as children of God and the deep humility to which we are called as followers of Jesus, while it seems like these two things stand in opposition, in fact, it is the first truth... That gives us the power to live into the second calling. It is because we are something special in God's eyes that we're able to be gentle and humble with those around us. People who are unsure of their worth are the ones who are always trying to prove to you how much they're worth. People who remind you about how rich they are are the ones who are most insecure about their wealth. When someone is arrogant or haughty, when someone feels the need to put other people down, it's only because they, deep down, have such a low opinion of themselves. Every blowhard knows that he's a loser. Every bully is a coward. Like Kate in She Stoops to Conquer... We can be willing to be humble and to serve other people. We can associate with the lowly and count others as more important than ourselves because we are secure in our identity. Kate knew that she was a wealthy woman. And so she was willing to appear to the world to be a mere serving girl. And if we know that we are sons and daughters of Almighty God, If we know that we are loved by the Most High God and destined to be um, partakers in unspeakable glory, then we can be free to be humble servants to other people. This is an important, it is a foundational principle of Christian living. And with that principle in mind, I want to quickly walk through our reading this morning from Romans chapter 12 as we continue this series of sermons through Paul's letter to the Romans. Our passage begins this way, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. Now there are four commandments in that one verse and all of these commands are about life inside the church. These are commands about how we should be living with one another as Christians. Live in harmony with one another. This is a really basic command of the Christian life. Christians are supposed to get along with other Christians. Now obviously we don't always do that. 
Which is why Paul is raising the issue. But it's what we're supposed to do. The ideal church is the church where everyone gets along with everyone else. Now, usually, when we have conflict with someone, we blame that conflict on the other person. I and some other person have differing opinions about something. About, I don't know, how children should behave or what songs are good in worship or whether or not we want a saxophone or what day this meeting should be scheduled. Or we have differing opinions. I and this other person have a different opinion. And then the conflict arises. And what we usually do almost 100% of the time is we blame the conflict on that other person. There would be no conflict if everyone were to agree with me. And so we rarely blame ourselves and we typically blame others whenever conflict arises in the life of the church. But what if we were to turn this around, which is what Paul is actually asking us to do? What if the next time there is a conflict in the church over one issue or another, what if the next time that happens... Rather than assuming that the other person is wrong and should change his mind, what would happen if I assumed that I were wrong and needed to change my mind? Can you imagine that? But that's exactly what Paul is asking us to do. Because he combines live in harmony with one another with do not be haughty, never be wise in your own sight. When I'm haughty, When I'm wise in my own sight, I assume that I am right and the other guy is wrong. When I assume that I am right and the other guy is wrong, there will be conflict. It is unavoidable. When I am haughty, when I am wise in my own sight, I look down on other people because of what they think or how they behave. When I am haughty, when I am wise in my own sight, I create conflict and I destroy harmony. What if the next time there were a conflict of what to do or how to do it, what if when that happens, I were to simply assume that that other person might be right and that I need to understand their point of view a little more clearly? I think the carpet should be brown. Billy thinks it should be blue. And when I discover this difference of opinion, what if I were to say to myself, I wonder what makes Joe think Blue is a better color. What have I missed? What don't I see? Compare that with saying, Billy is such an idiot. Everyone knows that brown is the best color for a carpet. When I'm haughty, when I'm wise in my own sight, I simply assume that I cannot be wrong and that if anyone has a different opinion from me, that they must be an idiot. That kind of haughtiness and that kind of self-wisdom destroys harmony within the church and the bible's command is that we not be haughty and that we not have an inflated opinion of our own wisdom and these commands are all intended to produce one goal that goal is harmony within the church in his farewell address on the night of the lord's supper which we commemorate uh, during Uh, this service this morning, Jesus said to his disciples, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone 
will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And when Jesus says everyone, he's talking about people outside of the church. Harmony inside of the church is a signal to the world outside of the church that the church is something different, that it's something special, that it is not the world. And when Christians are at each other's throats and tearing each other down, the world thinks that the church is no different than any other club, and we bring shame to the name of Christ, and we drive people away from the Savior. Lots and lots of people are estranged from the church because of how church people have behaved. Conflict in the church is the opposite of evangelism. If you want to see more people in this church, you can start by thinking about how you can contribute to harmony within the church. When Paul writes, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. He's writing to the church. He's writing to us. He's telling us how we need to live with one another. But Paul also offers commands about how we should be living with the world outside of the church as well. How we should be living among non-believers. He writes this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Our first instinct when someone does us wrong is to strike back. That's human nature. Well, maybe it's animal nature. And sometimes we tell ourselves that if we don't defend ourselves by striking back, that people will walk all over us, that people will take advantage of us. We tell ourselves that it is our right of self-defense to injure the person who injures us. But God's ways are different. God's ways are simply contrary to animal ways. And just as Jesus, who had the power of a million angels at his beck and call, did not strike back, we as his followers are commanded also to not strike back. Now hear this. The ability to not strike back is the sign of strength. And it comes from an awareness that there is something larger going on. It comes from an awareness of our identity as something special, as something supernatural, as something chosen by Almighty God. They say that the blood of martyrs is the seed from which the church has sprung. Wherever the church has been persecuted, it has flourished. God sent his all-powerful son into the world to seek and to save the lost. And the lost were the very people who nailed Jesus to the cross. And it was Christ's power in absorbing that abuse without retribution that made him victorious over everything that the devil and that the world could throw at him. As Christians, we are called to do the same. We're called to imitate Christ. We bless those who curse us. We feed those who abuse us. We pray for those who hate us. We help those who hurt us. Not because we're weak, 
but because we're strong. Not because we're doomed to failure, but because we are destined for victory. Jesus Christ is the victor. He is Lord over all. Jesus has the name that is above every name because of what he accomplished in his weakness and in his humility. The church, the body of Christ, is also called to great victory. We are and we will be victorious. Not because we're proud, not because we're powerful, not because we're haughty, but because we are humble and do not think too highly of ourselves. We are and we will be victorious, not because we dish out vengeance, but because we leave vengeance to God. As Christians, we stoop to conquer. We don't stoop because we lack self-esteem, but because we know who we are. We don't stoop because we think we're worthless, but rather we stoop and are humble and associate with the lowly because we know just how valuable we are. So valuable that divine blood was shed for us. We stoop and are humble and associate with the lowly because we know that only by imitating Christ will we be victorious in the end. And one final question as I close. What is the victory that we're after? What is it that we hope to accomplish with our humility toward one another and our lack of vengeance toward the world? What does the victorious Christian life look like? I could preach a whole series of sermons just on that topic, but let me say this briefly. Our goal and final victory is the glory of Christ. The victorious Christian life is one which brings honor and glory to Christ. When the church is healthy and harmonious, when the church is loving and caring for its own, when the church shrugs off the abuse of the world and blesses those who curse them, when the people in the world, then the people in the world will look on in wonder and know that something different is happening inside of the church and God will be honored and God will be glorified. The apostle Peter puts it this way. He's writing to the whole church. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me assure you that you are more valuable than you know. And let me charge you to meditate on your great worth in Christ so that like Christ you will be able to lay it all down and walk humbly in this life to the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would uh, give us the ability to see the things that you see and to believe the things that you believe about us. Lord, I pray that we might see ourselves as beloved and redeemed creatures made in the image of God, people called to a special 
role in the history of the universe, I pray that we might know our worth and our dignity, and that that might give us strength and encouragement as we face the trials of this life. Lord, I pray that we might live in humility uh, to bless those around us, inside the church and outside of the church. I pray that we might live in humility so that we might bring honor to your name. And I do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.